Alice Wong, Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century, narrated by Rosalind Tordesillas and Thomas Florio. What's it like to live with a disability? The answers to that question are as diverse as the people telling the stories. There's no one definition of disability and no unifying experience that people with disabilities go through, which is why it's strange that the representation of disabled people in the media is so limited. Alice Wong has dedicated her career to making disability visible and to calling attention to the structural inequalities that affect how disabled people move through the world. In these blinks, we've synthesized a selection of essays by disabled activists, writers, artists, and thinkers that Wong curated to shed new light on what it's like to be disabled in an ableist world. Blink one of ten. When she was growing up, Alice Wong didn't see anyone who looked like her on TV or in magazines. Occasionally, a character with a disability would be featured in a movie, but that character was invariably male and white, and often his disability was portrayed as having ruined his life. Even today, more than 30 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, made it illegal to discriminate against people with disabilities, there's still little representation of disabled people in the media, politics, and publishing. In fact, a 2019 Lee and Lowe survey of the publishing industry revealed that only 11% of respondents described themselves as having a disability. That means that the vast majority of people making decisions about which stories are worth telling are non-disabled. The key message here is, disabled people's stories are underrepresented in mainstream media. Alice Wong decided to do something about this lack of representation of disabled people and their lives. If she couldn't find the stories she craved, she'd produce some herself. She founded the Disability Visibility Project, or DVP, and set out to create an ambitious oral history archive, partnering with StoryCorps to collect 140 stories of disabled people leading up to the 25th anniversary of the ADA. And she didn't stop there. The DVP has gone on to use every possible medium to increase disabled people's visibility. For example, it coined the hashtag CripTheVote and invited disabled people to live-tweet the 2016 Democratic primary debate. This created a crucial focus on disability rights that had been largely absent in the political discourse up to that point. By 2020, CripTheVote had become so influential that it was even hosting Twitter town halls with presidential candidates like Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg. Foregrounding the stories of disabled people is essential to the battle for equity and political representation. But even more than that, it's important because it allows for a nuanced representation of the huge spectrum of people who have disabilities. 
and it allows disabled people to share experiences with each other, interrogate stigma, and shape stories on their own terms. The Disability Visibility Project continues to do this work through its oral history project, podcast, blog posts, anthology, and any other avenue that becomes available, in the hope that in the future, all children will be able to see representations of themselves in the world as they grow up. Blink 2 of 10 Imagine having to spend your life convincing other people that you deserve to be alive, that your life is valuable and meaningful. That's what disability rights lawyer Harriet McBride Johnson had to do on a daily basis. She was disabled and used a power wheelchair. She had a muscle-wasting disease for over 40 years and was extremely thin. Her spine was twisted into an S-shape and she held herself up by resting her elbows on her knees. She was also completely comfortable in her body. But that's not what other people saw when they looked at her. When she was out in public, people would stop her to tell her that she was brave for leaving the house, or that if they were in her position, they'd want to kill themselves. Here's the key message. Disabled people's lives are seen as intrinsically less valuable than those of others. They didn't see her pleasure in being alive, her delight in zooming along in her chair, feeling the cool breeze on her face. Instead, they saw someone who was disabled and then instantly assumed that must mean her life wasn't worth living. Without realizing it, they were buying into a toxic stereotype that's been very well entrenched in our culture, that the lives of people with disabilities are less valuable than those of non-disabled people. Johnson had gotten tired of trying to prove to these people that she was indeed happy, that her life was rich and, to her at least, valuable. So, mostly, she just ignored the comments. But when she discovered that a Princeton professor was supporting these same toxic arguments that disabled people's lives are inferior, she knew she had to fight back. The professor, Peter Singer, is a philosopher who developed a theory of so-called preference utilitarianism. He argues that parents should be allowed to kill babies with severe cognitive impairments because these babies will have less chance of a good, happy life than babies without such issues. How do you have a civil conversation with someone who's arguing, essentially, that you should have been killed at birth? Johnson was put in that position when she accepted Singer's invitation to debate him at Princeton. She told him that the heart of his argument was flawed. He, like so many others, she argued, assumed that disability determines the quality and outcome of a person's life. But there's no proper evidence for that. Singer was confusing his prejudice for evidence. Blink 3 of 10 The church was hot and filled with people dancing and singing. June Eric Eudori's grandmother instructed her to soak her communion wafer in wine and place it over her eyes. Her grandmother told her that if she prayed hard enough, God would restore her sight. For as long as she could remember, 
Eric Udori had felt like she was a broken piece of machinery waiting to be fixed. She was born with an eye condition called nystagmus that gives her reduced vision. It's incurable, but that didn't stop her family from praying for a miracle. The key message is this. Insisting that disabled people need to search for a cure can be harmful. But the miracle didn't come. Eric Udori tried bargaining with God, asking him to fix her even for a short time. But he didn't oblige. She felt deeply ashamed and like she was letting her family down. They'd always treated her condition as if it were temporary. But deep down, she knew that it wasn't. That was a conclusion that Liz Moore, a person living with chronic pain, came to as well. Moore tried everything to recover from fibromyalgia. Reiki, neo-pagan rituals, medication, physical therapy, dieting, and a host of other treatments. The people around them insisted that they should never accept they were disabled, that that would be like giving up. They hoped that with enough effort and positive thinking, they'd be cured. But the search for a cure was relentless and all-consuming. Moore realized that they needed to come to accept their body, exactly the way it was, in order to actually live their life. Eric Udori came to the same conclusion. She stopped bargaining with God and decided to renounce the shame and secrecy she'd grown up with and claim her identity as someone with a vision disability. Rather than feeling trapped by her disability, she now felt more free. She started to learn to navigate the world on her own terms, instead of pretending to be non-disabled. She stopped apologizing for missing a step or being unable to see a friend's mimed directions. Her first solo outing to a cafe was terrifying and triumphant. She'd stopped waiting and started living. Blink 4 of 10 People who have bodies that don't conform to the cultural norm are told that they should try to hide or assimilate in order to look normal. Think of the woman who has had a mastectomy who's told she should wear a prosthetic breast. Or transgender people who are told they need to pass as a certain gender to be accepted in society. This push toward conformity and blending in is reflected in the clothing that's available for disabled and gender non-conforming people. Most clothing made specifically for disabled people is designed for those who are stationary. The designers don't seem to conceive of the disabled as people who might want to dance or navigate a city or go to a lecture. Most of all, such clothing isn't designed for disabled people who want to be striking, beautiful, or flamboyant. The key message here is, custom-made clothing can celebrate disabled and queer people's bodies. When Sky Kubakub developed a painful condition that stopped their stomach from being able to digest food properly, they were no longer able to wear stiff clothes like jeans designed for non-disabled people. They started looking for good alternatives, but were very disappointed with the clothing available. It was boring and seemed to be designed for elderly people or people confined to hospital beds. 
Kubakub had been exploring their gender identity for several years and had also failed to find any undergarments that fitted them. They realized that what was needed was clothing that celebrated all aspects of people's bodies and identities and how they want to express them in the world. They enrolled in a design class and launched Rebirth Garments. Rebirth Garments creates clothes and accessories that are custom-made to fit the wearer's body and can be made for people of all sizes, abilities, and gender expressions. The garments are designed to be seen. They're printed in bright colors with geometric shapes. Instead of hiding the body of the wearer, they flaunt it. Think of a jeweled colostomy bag and colorful breast-binding underwear that can be worn as outerwear. Or sexy, skin-tight, plus-size dresses and clothing made with seams on the outside for people with sensory sensitivities. Instead of hosting traditional fashion shows, Rebirth hosts dance parties, where the models are free to move around in whatever way feels good for their bodies, showing how the clothing works in action. There's nothing frivolous about fashion. It communicates so much about our status in the world. Rebirth confronts traditional beauty standards and in so doing makes space for disabled and queer people to become visible on their own terms. Blink 5 of 10 Artists like Vincent van Gogh are always cited as examples of creative geniuses whose anguish made their work possible. Shoshana Kesok felt, too, that her creativity as a writer was made possible in part because of the manic spells she experienced as someone with bipolar disorder. When she was in the grip of mania, she could write 12,000 words in a night and map out a whole series of books. But when she was first diagnosed and went to a psychiatrist at the age of 16, those spells of wild productivity were snuffed out. He prescribed her so many different medications that she walked around in a haze. She could barely feel her emotions, never mind create art. The medication destroyed her memory and caused her to gain a lot of weight. She even dropped out of high school at age 17. Here's the key message. Mental illness is mythologized as aiding creativity, but it creates barriers, too. Understandably, Kassok decided the costs of being medicated were too high. She went off her medication for 10 years and lived in what she describes as a tornado. She had intense manic spells in which she felt on top of the world and stayed awake writing and playing games for days. She felt like she was flying. But these highs were followed by intense lows when she couldn't even get out of bed. Going to graduate school proved to be a game changer. One day, when some of her artwork was critiqued by a teacher, she broke down and had a panic attack in the bathroom. That led her to seek help at a mental health clinic across the road. Her new doctor understood bipolar disorder and how to treat it. He promised to work with her to find medication that worked for her. On the first day after taking her new medication, Kessok felt like the tornado in her head had quieted down to a soft breeze. She could still write, 
but she didn't have to wait for a manic spell. Instead, she worked thoughtfully and deliberately without the roller coaster of highs and lows she'd endured for so long. Artists don't create because of mental illness. They create in spite of mental illness. Van Gogh only sold one painting during his life, not because his peers didn't appreciate his work, but because he was too sick even to engage with his broader community. Imagine what he could have done if help and support had been available. Blink 6 of 10 Darnell T. Wicker was a deaf black veteran living in Louisville, Kentucky. One night, he was shot multiple times by police seconds after they'd issued a verbal warning, a warning that he couldn't hear or lip-read in the dark. 60 to 80% of people who are murdered by police are deaf or disabled. Over half of all male prisoners and 73% of female prisoners have a disability. Structural racism means that Black people are vastly overrepresented in these numbers. And yet, activist organizations like the Movement for Black Lives ignore the experiences of disabled people in their activism. The key message is this. Disabled people need to be central to the fight for racial justice. In fact, in its fundamental manifesto, published in 2016, the movement barely acknowledged the existence of deaf and disabled people. While it talked about wanting to fight for the most marginal in the community, like queer people, it didn't refer to disability as a source of marginalization. This is a strange omission, given that most Black victims of police violence are deaf or disabled. In fact, more than an omission, this is an erasure. When Darnell Wicker was murdered, activists fighting for justice didn't highlight the fact that he was deaf. It seems like there's an internalized ableism within the movement, a sense of stigma around explicitly naming disability and its role in the oppression of Black people. But erasing disability from the conversation is harmful. The truth is that disabled people are twice as likely to live in poverty as non-disabled people. Children with disabilities are five to six times as likely to enter the juvenile legal system compared to other children. Any fight against white supremacy won't be effective if it doesn't concurrently fight ableism. And any movement that considers intersectionality important has to place the rights of disabled and deaf people at its center. The Harriet Tubman Collective is a group of activists who fight against the erasure of disabled and deaf people in racial justice movements. It honors the memories of victims of police violence and makes their identities as disabled, deaf, or neurodiverse people visible. It insists that the fight for racial justice is always also a fight for disability justice. Black lives matter. Black disabled lives matter. Darnell T. Wicker's life matters. Sandra Bland's life matters. Eric Garner's life matters. And so do the lives of all the other disabled victims of police violence. Blink 7 of 10 
when the astronomer Wanda Diaz-Merced lost her ability to see, she thought she'd lost her career as well. Diaz-Merced studied gamma-ray bursts in the sky, intense explosions that happen when stars reach the end of their fuel and become supernovas. Astronomers study these events by looking at the light that's emitted during gamma-ray bursts. They're represented visually in a kind of graph. When Diaz-Merced became blind, she was no longer able to access that data. So how could she continue her work as a scientist? Instead of giving up altogether, she and her team invented a way to convert the data to sound, with different volume levels and pitches representing different points on the graph. She created a way in which she and other non-sighted astronomers could listen to the stars. The key message here is, with the right support, disabled people can help drive innovation in the world. Diaz-Merced's disability pushed her to create an innovation that made her whole field more accessible. But that's not all it did. It also provided researchers with a new source of knowledge. The sound representations of the data provided some new information about gamma-ray bursts that weren't visible in the graphs. We now have the technology to support people with all kinds of disabilities. We have modified cars that allow disabled people to drive independently and programs that allow people with speech difficulties to communicate with the outside world. This technology is slowly becoming more accessible and affordable. For example, Siri, the software that responds to verbal commands, has transformed the lives of disabled people with mobility issues. The technology sounds futuristic, but it's now common in many homes. And yet, too often, access to support and accommodation is severely restricted for those who aren't wealthy or don't have health insurance. For example, lawyer Brittany Wilson has documented how arduous it is to travel to her work in New York City on the paratransit system, a system disabled people rely on to get to work and navigate the city. It often takes her over two hours to travel a distance of a few miles. Disabled people are underrepresented in all industries. That won't change until there's a real commitment to creating equitable access. Until that happens, all of us will lose out on experiencing the innovation that's possible in the workplace, from making someone's journey more comfortable to hearing stars. Blink 8 of 10 Jen Deerinwater's identity is erased as soon as she steps into a hospital and has to fill out an intake form. There, she's forced to check a box indicating she's, quote, American Indian, or, quote, Native American, or even just, quote, other. But she's not any of those things. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, one of hundreds of autonomous nations in America. Being Native isn't a racial identity that can fit in a box on a form. Once she's filled in the form, Water has to field off intrusive questions and myriad racist microaggressions just to access treatment. It's gotten to a point where she has to take anxiety medication just to be able to go to an appointment. Here's the key message. 
Indigenous people are victims of a racist healthcare system. Deer and Water's experience isn't unusual. It's impossible to understand the experiences of chronically sick Indigenous people living in the United States without understanding the racist colonial systems that make them so. Indigenous people living on reservations depend on the Indian Health Service, or IHS. But this system has historically been abusive to the people it's supposed to serve. For example, in the 1970s, between 25 and 50 percent of women who were treated in IHS facilities were sterilized against their will. What's more, the system is seriously underfunded. In fact, prisoners are allocated more than six times as much money for health care as indigenous people are. Reproductive health care is almost non-existent, and people often have to travel hundreds of miles to access the nearest clinic. Indigenous people have a life expectancy of only 66.8 years, lower than that of people in Iraq, Sudan, or India. They have the highest rates of murder, suicide, heart disease, diabetes, and drug abuse in the USA. These problems are directly traceable to colonialism. Indigenous land has been looted and used as a dumping ground for nuclear waste and other pollutants that seep into the ground, causing an epidemic of diseases. Indigenous people are no longer able to hunt or gather traditional foods. This has meant a quarter of all Native people have to rely on government food assistance. But the food provided is of low quality and very unhealthy, contributing to heart disease, diabetes, and a host of other problems. With so many elders dying early, vital intergenerational knowledge isn't being passed down, robbing whole communities of resources. Every time Deer in Water stares at a hospital admission form, she's reminded of this history and its erasure. But instead of gritting her teeth and ticking the boxes, she started to fight back. She insists on being correctly identified and on receiving the medical treatment she deserves. Blink 9 of 10 Ricardo Thornton spent his childhood and teenage years in institutions for people with intellectual disabilities, spending most of his time at a notorious institute called Forest Haven. Forest Haven was a kind of holding cell. Thornton had to obey the instructions of the staff at all times. He had no room to make his own decisions or have a say in how he lived his life. Forest Haven was closed in 1991 after it was revealed that staff were routinely abusive to the people in their care. But the practice of segregating people with intellectual disabilities persists. Today, over 92,000 people live in institutions. The key message is this. Intellectually disabled people thrive when living in communities instead of institutions. Thornton was lucky to be able to leave Forest Haven in his early 20s. He moved to a group home and adjusted to life within the community. In the group home, he had more autonomy. He fell in love with another person who'd endured Forest Haven, a woman named Donna, 
and when she proposed, they were able to get married and move in together. Donna and Ricardo have lived a life that no one could have imagined for them when they were living in Forest Haven. They've worked in the public sector for many decades, raised a son, and become powerful advocates for other disabled people living in institutions. But Ricardo outright rejects the idea that there's anything special or exceptional about them, or that they're somehow different from other people with intellectual disabilities. The only thing different about them, he says, is that they were given support and opportunities, opportunities they'd never have had in an institution like Forest Haven, where they were treated as completely helpless and had to depend on the staff for everything. Ricardo argues that anyone can live in a community if they have the right support. This should come from programs like Medicaid, which provide personal care, nursing, and transport services. And people should have the opportunity to build their own care networks with other activists, family, or church communities. Most importantly, People need to have the opportunity to make their own decisions and to be given as much autonomy as possible over their own lives. Blink 10 of 10. The lights dim in the hushed theater, and dancers Alice Shepard and Laurel Lawson roll out onto the stage, weaving beautiful dances to music with lighting and projections. This is no ordinary show. The audience is made up mainly of disabled people. It's a crip space, a space designed for people in power chairs, people with canes, people who are deaf, and people who are blind. In this space, it's the non-disabled people who feel out of place, the bipedal people who come to see that their bodies could never accomplish the same kinds of movements as the dancers on stage. The key message here is, Crip Spaces and Care Networks Power Disability Justice Movements Disabled people rarely have chances to get together in a social space rather than, say, a medical facility or hospital waiting room. In fact, social gatherings designed for disabled people, Crip Spaces, are threatening to the non-disabled. Why would disabled people want to segregate themselves like that? They ask. Disability is seen by the non-disabled as something bad and undesirable. So, the logic goes, disabled people should focus on assimilating into abled society. But ableist environments are precisely what make being disabled so challenging. Rooms without ramps, meetings without sign language interpreters, concerts where everyone is expected to stand. Disabled people are forced to contort themselves to fit into those spaces all the time, using vast amounts of energy that could and should be used for other things. Things like enjoying a dance performance, or some good food, or a conversation with someone you don't have to explain your experiences to. Disability justice is about fighting discrimination. But just as importantly, it's about creating networks of care. It's about creating spaces where disabled people can come together to support each other, meal trains for those needing sustenance, and emotional support for those having a hard time. It's about replacing the ableist notion of independence with the idea of interdependence, 
Disability justice is also about recognizing the intersections in our struggles. For example, disability rights groups have been on the front lines of the fight against air pollution, distributing 80,000 masks in Oakland during the wildfires of 2018. And they've been active in protesting the incarceration of immigrants in ICE camps, many of whom are disabled and neurodivergent. Disability justice networks are often invisible to the non-disabled, but they're always there, creating interdependent, resilient communities that are dreaming up radical futures of care. You've just listened to our blinks to Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. The key message in these blinks is that creating visibility for disabled people means making space to contemplate the enormous diversity and complexity in disabled people's stories. We can't understand what it means to live as a disabled person without also understanding ableism and racism and how that affects the ways in which disabled people are allowed to move in the world. Disability justice movements create vital spaces for respite and community building. And here's some actionable advice. Create your own care network. All of us are interdependent, meaning that we all need each other. But today, we live with a capitalist myth that we should all be completely self-sufficient. Think about how you can support the people around you in tasks that are challenging to them. And practice asking for help yourself. It may be daunting at first, but it will help you create more vulnerable and honest friendships and teach people that they can count on you too. 